This time, we take a look at the body horror isolationist classic, John Carpenter's The Thing. And along the way, we ask, what's the deal with Kurt Russell's hat? What kind of research actually happened at Outpost 31? And was this movie spoiled right from the very beginning? It's weird and it's pissed off on this edition of Force-Fed Sci-Fi. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Force-Fed Sci-Fi Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Chris Rupp, and I am joined by my friend and co-host... The Norwegian helicopter, Sean Michael Culp. I think you left out Norwegian helicopter pilot because <laughs> the helicopter just blows up and now you're anthropomorphizing a oh, transportation no. thing. Oh oh I'm I'm the helicopter, Chris. That's what I am. <laughs> I know exactly what I said. <laughs> I make a big okay. bang, baby. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> oh Jesus Christ. Welcome back. <laughs> So Sean's double entendres aside, we are discussing today John Carpenter's The Thing. And this is a film that we that I for one am excited to discuss and a film that we briefly mentioned when we were discussing the original film in this series, uh, The Thing from Another World, which came out on our feed Mm -hmm. in December of 2019. So it's fun to see how things are starting to come full circle around in this show definitely definitely i know you've been wanting to talk about this film for a long time i think you've told me that this is one of your favorite films if i'm correct oh yeah absolutely i have very fond memories of watching this with my dad and just managing to take away something new from it every time that i've watched it but getting a little too far ahead of myself let's provide (laughs) Let's provide the briefest of synopsis for those who may be unfamiliar with John Carpenter's The Thing. So, after a mysterious accident at an American outpost in Antarctica, the men stationed there inadvertently awaken an alien organism that takes over and copies anything it touches. While battling their own growing suspicions of each other, they must fight to destroy the creature and save the world. Boom. So... Why it's a it's a pretty fun premise to play around with and and I think that people are familiar with this film on a base level but they're not super familiar with with sort of the intricacies that make it work. And uh, we'll we'll get to that later on as we progress through this episode, but I think I think <laughs> you're right on that. Definitely like people I think the thing is more hailed as a cult classic now in modern times than it is initially upon viewing because I've heard of it. I know for me, I heard it, heard of it as a great film from the eighties in hindsight, but I know like my parents didn't see it. Like I haven't, I've never heard much talk about it. Actually. I've just heard of it essentially from the prequel, honestly in 2011. And then once you start talking about it, I was like, Oh snap, this guy, he's really into this classic horror film. So I'm excited to hear more about that and unpack it. Yeah, and this was the brainchild of great director John Carpenter, and he had built his early career. He produced several low-budget thriller and horror films like Dark Star, Assault on Precinct 13, and then he directed Halloween, which totally Mm -hmm. revitalized the slasher subgenre within horror films and gave birth to, you know, gave us the shape. Michael Myers, this, this all powerful killing machine that will stop at nothing. Yes. And it's a million sequels after (laughs) so many sequels because Hollywood can't get enough of a good thing. And that's right. And then starring in this film, we have Kurt Russell as McCready and, Mm-hmm. But Russell had previously worked together with Carpenter, and I always forget this when I going to talk about Kurt Russell sometimes, is that they worked together on a television film called Elvis. And Russell was nominated for a Golden Globe in this portrayal. And I think this kind of got him started on this whole obsession that he's had with playing Elvis Presley whenever possible. Because in Forrest Gump, he actually voiced 
um, a, a very young Elvis. And then a few years after that, he was in this movie with Kevin Costner where they play a bunch of Elvis impersonators at rob a casino. So <laughs> I don't know right. what's going on with Kurt Russell, but he's got this near borderline unhealthy <laughs> obsession with Elvis Presley. He he likes Elvis just a little too much. A little too much. It's a little, if I'm Goldie Hawn, it's a little worrying how much he likes Elvis Presley. Are you saying that during karaoke nights, Kurt Russell will probably drunkenly stumble onto the stage and sing Elvis songs? Um, I think you could almost certainly bet money on that happening. (laughs) Right you are. (laughs) Including uh, Kurt Russell. The other uh, prominent actor nowadays more so is uh, Keith David. He was in this film. And I know with Keith David, to star in this film, initially he wasn't the first pick. And he primarily was a theater actor before getting into the thing. So actually he had to do a lot of rehearsal and practice um, before they started shooting, because I guess the director, John Carpenter said that Keith David was way too big, like his scenes. He didn't master the art of subtlety with his, you know, with film acting, it's way different than theater, which is kind of interesting because I never thought of Keith David being like an over the top actor. No, I never would have thought that about him either, but I mean, he definitely has the perfect voice to do theater, and if you don't know who Keith oh David is, odds are you know what he sounds like, so. <laughs> yes, he was the voice of uh, one of the primary characters in Mass Effect, if you've ever played any of those games. You nerds out there! Uh, to be fair, though, Keith David has had probably like a hundred voiceover roles, and Mass yes. Effect is just one of them, but I don't know if you read this too, but I was looking at the other actors they considered gassing in this film. And it's a veritable who's who of Hollywood, like tough guys and comedians that they considered literally for every role in the film. Really? All right. Throw me the list. (laughs) Well, they, they, they want, they thought about Christopher Walken, Jeff Bridges (laughs) and Nick Nolte for McCready, but they all passed on it. And then moving on for other roles, there was Chris Christopherson, Ed Harris, Tom Berenger, Peter Coyote, um, Carl Weathers, and uh, Isaac Hayes were even considered to Isaac play Hayes. Childs at one point. Even Ernie Hudson was the front runner to play the role of Childs. And I'm, so, I'm sorry, Chris, but you still have me at Christopher Walken. Like, I'm just like <laughs> imagining Chris Walken as like Kurt Russell. There's a thing attacking us what do we do <laughs> we, what you we don't di- understand we blow it up <laughs> with dynamite. what you don't understand see is that <laughs> there is this alien that's taking over people and it spits them out and they don't know they're the thing and so we have to go get these flamethrowers and burn them up you see <laughs> Oh, I want to see that movie. I want to see that movie, man. Good Lord. Oh, that's funny as hell. Sorry to cut you off. I would love to see a version of this film where Christopher Walken plays McCready and Isaac Hayes plays Childs. Oh, my I think that that would be hysterical. Dude, you have one of the coolest men ever to watch Walk the Earth, and then you got... The man who enunciates a little too much. And dramatic <laughs> pause. The dramatic pause. of He, he put Shatner to shame. <laughs> but I mean, after Russell and David, though, it's just... I don't want to say it's like no names that are in the cast, because there actually are some pretty decent uh, actors that they cast. I mean, Wilford Brimley, T.K. Carter, David Clennon, Richard Dysart, Charles Hallahan... Peter Maloney, Richard Macer, Donald Moffat, Joe Polis, and Thomas Waits are all in this film, and they've all been in great projects before this and after this. I mean, and it's unfortunately we don't have enough time to get into everything that these men have done, but it's this, mm-hmm. I don't want to say strange alchemy, but it's this weird chemistry that works. And I think a lot of it, this is a big enough cast, it almost seems like more suited to a stage play as opposed to a major production. 
Mm-hmm. It does feel like that again. I would say for this film, it's it's very similar to the predecessor that came out in the fifties, in certain elements. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it. I mean, there's one central location. There's this otherworldly thing, obviously, that's you know stalking the crew or is hiding amongst them, and it's the 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 suspicion itself is what helps aid the tension throughout the film when it doesn't seem like anything is really happening. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it has to do with Universal Studios and John Carpenter's vision for this film. And they wanted to create a more faithful adaptation of the original source material, which is um, John W. Campbell's short story, Who Goes There? And while the thing from another world is based on that, it's more like elements are cherry picked from it and then just dropped into a film and, you know, you know, sci-fi lore ensues from there. <laughs> a giant carrot attacks the home base. <laughs> that's what, that's what that was. If you want more details on that film, definitely check out our previous episode <laughs> on that. <laughs> yeah. D- yeah. I'd, have you ever read the source material? Yeah, I actually read it in preparation for The Thing from Another World. I didn't have time to read it before we recorded um, this episode. Um, but it, it's it's a pretty memorable story, I will say. It's um, it defi- the, the John Carpenter's The Thing definitely retains the main elements of of the original story. The the characters are most of the characters are named the same. There's a there's some more detail in in terms of the outposts and what actually goes on there, and the creature is actually described in more detail in the original story. But I mean, mm-hmm. really, I think I think that 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 this film manages to really capture the essence of that original story. Okay, right on. It seemed. I mean, it it seems like they it nailed down isolationism perfectly and nihilism <laughs> down <laughs> i mean this like those guys were isolated in that uh outpost and i think uh if i read the principal photography and everything was done in alaska if i'm correct right so they were like freezing yeah. they were freezing cold yeah alaska in british columbia as well as a very cold set that was built on at universal studios yeah that's insane. Uh, yeah, it said that the climate controlled was uh, 28 degrees. That's insane. But, it, you know, that was something that I noticed in the film. Because I was like, oh, man, is this going to be like that other movie? We watched the thing from another world where there was, you know, they're outside, but the cold air doesn't come out of their mouths. Or in our recent review, Sky Captain, The World of Tomorrow. Get a nice little plug there. But their breath, you could actually see it coming out. And so they were freezing you could i could see them shaking and shivering so kudos to carpenter from actually for actually like doing it you know and the actual elements yeah i think if this were in the hands of a different director i don't know if the same attention to detail would have been would have been there and it's there was a lot of hot potato kind of going on with different directors when universal greenlit the film they originally wanted toby hooper who had previously directed the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I mean, and this was after Carpenter even passed on the first uh, pass Universal made at him. Uh, John Landis was asked to be uh, brought on. Um, even, I mean, in Ridley Scott, in a way, helped revitalize this project because nobody thought that a sci-fi horror film would be able to captivate audiences. And then Ridley Scott is like, Oh, I've got this. And then he releases alien, which everybody <laughs> loved. Mm-hmm. And then I think we can't talk about this film without talking about the creature effects. And I know that was one of the things that you were excited to talk about when we were discussing uh, the layout for today's episode. Oh my God. Yes. The creature effects in this film. I would say to anyone, this is a film. So I know like I'm a nerd where I poo poo on CGI films, but this is a film where the effects are just fantastic. 
and they put a lot of work into it. Like it is 81, 80 or 81 when this film came out, but the effects are just so, uh, it's just grotesque. Like seeing the dog, like the thing take over the dogs and strangle them and mutate and like the skins peeling away and oh my god even like when it inhabits the humans like carpenter did an incredible job on the effects i i recommend anyone to just like don't just google it you gotta watch it i feel though for these effects like if you just google them you'll get it you'll see it it'll be like oh that's kind of cool looks kind of cheesy but if you watch the movie and you get the whole experience and the build-up I think the tension and everything, seeing the reactions from the actors to the effects, really kind of gets you immersed to where, to me, it was kind of terrifying. I didn't want to go to bed, actually. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, the credit has to go to Rob Bottin, who, I mean, we'll get to this in a little bit, who almost worked himself to death on this film, but he... Oh my a God. lot of the input came from him in terms of the design of the creatures and even some of the lore behind this um, this intergalactic being. I mean, the idea that it would retain a piece of uh, things that had previously assimilated and that it would be a perfect imitation of whatever it copied and also that people wouldn't know they were the thing. And yeah. this also led the actors... Um, to discuss during rehearsals like how they would behave once they knew they were the thing and how it would change their actions in the film leading up to that which is so i mean yeah, in his it, yeah it's 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 rare when uh, a special effects or makeup designer i mean has i don't want to say like direct input but also but almost like a very influential input in terms of the direction of the film Mm-hmm. And when, and when we say that Rob Bottin worked himself to death, I mean, nearly so. He was 21 years old when he was working on this film. I mean, imagine, I mean, <laughs> what were you doing at 21, Sean? I don't think it was working on a major motion picture. Hell no, I was at Kohl's and going to college, man. <laughs> I wasn't doing anything like this. I wish, ah, but I probably would have jacked it up. <laughs> but he mind. he nearly worked himself to death. He Botine had to go to the hospital for exhaustion. He had double pneumonia at one point, oh and God. he was treated for a bleeding ulcer. It was <laughs> it got to be so exhausting for him that they even had to bring on Stan Winston to help complete some of the des- uh, the designs. And I think in particular it was the dog thing, the the first uh, major effect we see in the film that he's credited with. But he doesn't get an official credit in the film. He's get a he receives a thank you at the end of the film because he refused to to take a credit for his work. He he wanted Botine to get all the credit. Yeah, I mean, I saw that Botine he he did work really hard on this. Didn't I think he said like he had so much pressure that he dreamt about working on the designs, and then when he would wake up, he would take notes on that, which I think to me. Being, like you said, 21, like all that pressure on such a young age, having to do all that is just nuts. So I think kudos to them for bringing in Stan Winston and like kind of having, I'm sure Winston kind of took Botine and was like, all right, come here, young man. This is how we're going to manage this, you know, and he was kind of like that, not authority figure, but he was that mentor to him to help, you know, clear the mucky waters of the disillusionment. But definitely Botine, he he was just, oh, my God. It's just you could read so much about it on Wikipedia. Like, he didn't even know, like, what he was doing. But somehow he, they, he just figured it out in the moment, and it turned out into this incredible creature. Yeah, and it's, um, I mean, it, 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 Botine actually doesn't have a ton of work after this film. I mean, he's... um. He designed, he helped, I mean, one of the big things that he worked on was he helped design the RoboCop suit and that film. He also worked on uh, Total Recall, um, several other films that he did in the in the 90s. And then the last credit I see for him was um, Game of Thrones in 2014. So it may have been that he worked <laughs> in like a, like a battle, 
like an episode that had a battle sequence or something. But mm-hmm. I think this film really kind of burned him out, and he just he, he took he took his he took a really long break. And I mean, hey, given the finished product, I would say that's a that was a break well earned. Oh, I definitely agree with you, because if you look at all the scenes, I mean, there's so many scenes with the monster, and I think even Boutin said himself he was worried that they were showing the thing too much, you know, that the audiences would get tired of it. And I think that's why it also led to like that exhaustion. Cause it's like, all right, well, if we're going to show the monster this many times, it has to be something new, something fresh every single time. And it has to get bigger and bigger. And throughout the film, as the thing becomes more prevalent, it starts off with that fantastical formation of the dog but then it gets bigger and bigger with every transformation till the end where it's like a culmination of almost all the things it inhibited and it's i mean i get why and the choices he had to make but jesus good lord i i i could see as well why he <laughs> like dropped out after that he was like i'm done never doing a big picture like this again it's not worth it <laughs> well i mean and he he partnered up with I mean, he picked the perfect partner in John Carpenter to work with on this mm-hmm. film, and I think, and I think at this point in Carpenter's career, like 1980s John Carpenter, he seemed to have a message in every single one of his films. And I, I was thinking about that while watching this, and the whole question that I was thinking of here was, what is the message of the thing? Like, what is Carpenter trying to say here? All right, what do you think, Chris? I think you have to look at his political beliefs. And I think in Carpenter has made no bones about it, that he is outspokenly liberal and many of his films kind of reflect his values. I think in, then two to me that stick out in particular are escape from New York, which takes place within an entire city that's been converted into a prison and they live, which is his obviously it's his most blatant symbolism within any of his films. It's really, it's the dangers of capitalism and Reaganomics and trickle down economics and all that stuff and features one of the, the greatest fist fights in the history of cinema. And I think this film along with Halloween, which he did a few years prior was attacking the notion of like these safe places, you know, even in isolation, you know, you aren't, safe and halloween in particular was a critique of the suburbs because Mm. at the time people were fleeing the cities thinking the suburbs were safe and you know at the same time we had serial killers that were stalking suburbs you know you had had people like ted bundy um joseph james d'angelo who was the golden state killer really kind of striking fear in the heart of the suburbs and really kind of making people second guess their you know their decisions and the thing follows a similar vein and that even in the most isolated part of the world where the furthest help is thousands of miles away there's danger lurking and it's appropriate to be cautious in those situations i think that was a wonderful breakdown of john carpenter's message i don't think anyone could have ever said it better than that i think you got it literally on the head like it it makes sense like no one is safe and well and i think it's also important to note and you had talked about this too that there is this feeling of you know nihilism and Mm -hmm. dread that permeates throughout the film oh yeah the whole film is very nihilistic it even turns to the point where it's like the world is gonna come over to attack they're gonna it will take like it was 200 and 37,000 hours until the world is over. And even the film ends with a dour note, like they're freezing to death, essentially. And the two main characters, Keith David and Kurt Russell's character, come together. They don't like each other the whole film. But after blowing up the entire place, they know they're going to freeze to death and they just share a bottle of scotch. I mean, there's nothing more nihilistic than, well, accepting your own death. It means nothing. Yeah, just kind of accepting your fate in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of freezing cold. No one's there isn't anything us. you can do about it other than have a beer with your uh, your begrudging buddy. Yeah, and I know that was the thing with Keith David's character, where you weren't sure if he was the thing or not. Did you think he was? 
You know, um, I think yes, because and I, I'm inclined to agree with John Carpenter's opinion about this. And he has said that Childs was a, the thing because you don't see his breath in the snow, in the cold weather. I mean, you see McCready's breath really clearly and you don't see Childs at all, oh. which is why I think Childs was definitely the thing at the end of the film. Oh, snap. That's good. I didn't even see that. That's awesome. Ooh. Yeah. You see what I mean about you find new things every single time you watch this film? <laughs> There's something new to be found in every single viewing. That's how you know it's a great film. If every time you go back, you take something else away. Fantastic job. That's pretty good. <laughs> I mean, I mean, we, but you also talked about they destroy the outpost there. And... When the the Norwegian helicopter flies over at the beginning of the film, we see, you know, U.S. outpost, research outpost 31. Mm -hmm. Although, I don't know about you, but I didn't see them do any sort of research at that place. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, there wasn't any. uh, None that I saw. It, It seemed to be the most violent outpost, research outpost that I've ever seen in my entire life. I mean, shoot, I mean, the, the guy most blows the Norwegian's head off. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. They What, they blow the head off of the Norwegian guy? He's just trying to kill the dog. Which, how did you, what did you think about that opening? I think that's one of, like, the best cold openings that you could make for a film. Because they're... At the onset, we don't know why these two men are chasing this dog in a helicopter. We don't know if it's just because they're jerks, they're doing it for sport, or they're bored. And then when they land at the American outpost, and unfortunately the helicopter blows up, you, you see the Norwegian rifleman, he starts speaking his language. And if you actually speak Norwegian, you know the plot of the film. It's given away to you. I mean, and he says something to the effect of, it's not a dog, it's something imitating a dog. Get away from it, you idiots. And then he starts shooting, and then he's ultimately shot in the face. Yep, yep, because he, he misses and shoots the one of the guys, which I do have to say that Norwegian has pretty bad shot. And how much ammo does he have, too? <laughs> I was like, man, this guy keeps missing, which... Uh, what would the bullet even kill the thing? That would be my question. Well, that's just movie magic, you know. In movies, nobody has to reload. That's just how that goes. That's true. That's true. Not to nitpick. We'll get into that later. I mean, well, that's an interesting question too. I mean, would the bullet would a bullet even kill it? I mean, I think a bullet would injure it, and then it would cause it to like force its hand, and then just transform and mutate and you know, kill a bunch of people while it's outside. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, I don't know. Would a bullet even do anything to it? Yeah, I don't know. That was, a, see, because that was always my question about the thing is, what does the alien actually look like? Because in the film, the alien always seemed to be like a culmination of body parts and everything that it's ever inhabited. So I was always curious, A, like what was it? And then B, do the people actually know they are the thing? See, I don't think that they are aware they're the thing because you see them almost involuntarily transform. I mean, either when, like, the dog, for instance, when it's isolated or um, uh, Norris, when they're defibrillating his chest and trying to resuscitate him, it's almost, the thing almost acts out of, like, self-preservation mm-hmm. because I think the shocks are, like, hurting it and it's reacting to copper, um, def- like planting those defibrillators on its chest and then chomping his arms off. Yeah. And then, and then you see, I think, and then this is also true of the Palmer thing when McCready's doing his blood test, um, with the wire and the, and eating it up in the blood. And the, the Palmer thing is just like, well, I'm found out. I might as well, like, you know, you know, open up and start killing people. <laughs> I know. I get. Yeah. What was the mission of the thing to just survive? I think that was probably what it was. Yeah. Survive, overtake and conquer. I think that's it, very simple objectives is that it has. Mm-hmm. Definitely. But it's this whole 
but it's just this whole mystery and mysteries really surrounding the film. And I think that's one of the main strengths of of the thing is that it Carpenter manages to create mystery and doesn't answer those questions. I mean, it's he really leaves it up to people's imagination. And I think that that's it's a great it, there's several great mysteries in this film that just don't get answered. Well, I think. I think you're right with that. And that's why I'm going to say that this film is great because of the ambiguity. It's because so many of the films we see nowadays is very ham-fisted with its message or like the character's actions and why they do things. It's never... And there's a time and a place, and I think, for black and white things where you have your gunslingers and your superheroes. But some of the better films that I've seen tend to be more ambiguous where you take away the meaning and you don't you have to review it several times it's like a video game that you have to play multiple times that's what the that's when you know it's a good it's the good stuff and for this it's definitely fascinating with that trying to figure out why the creatures there why the people reacted in the way do they even know they're the thing how does the thing even like mutate the body like that and reassign the, it's just crazy questions so that was my question. How does that happen? Well, even just within Outpost 31, I mean, there's the mysteries of who was actually attacked first. Was it Palmer? Yeah. Uh, was it Norris? I mean, and I, I actually read that Carpenter used like a, the shadow of a crew member, you know, when the dog is stalking the hallways and it finds somebody who's alone in their room. Mm-hmm. He used a crew member instead of a cast member in order to keep the audience guessing so they wouldn't figure out who was it. Oh, that's smart. And, and then there was the mystery of who got to the blood. I mean, it, given how sort of late it was at that point in the film, like it could have been anybody who really who were assimilated then who could have gotten to it. Yeah, because the giveaway with Blair, I didn't know until the end that he was infected. Like, I just thought he was a lunatic and he didn't he was fighting for their side, you know, and then you find out that Blair's infected and he wants the thing wants to stay fly away or stay in its little new spaceship yeah i mean that's another mystery too like when was blair attacked i mean he was Mm -hmm. alone in that shack for the majority of the film after he went nuts and you know tried attacking people and killed the dogs and i mean the thing could have gotten to him literally at any point he was alone in that shed yeah and in this film there's just so many like unsettling scenes to me and like and it's 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 almost next to impossible to pick one that's like the most unsettling. But did you have a scene in this film that just like ooh that that's gonna give me the creeps here? Uh definitely. So I was one of those people that said, "Oh, this is going to be a cheesy '80s horror film, so this isn't gonna move me anyway." And seeing the dog transform, the first uh, rendition of the thing really geeked me out, man. Like I, I just, it, I felt such like terror and chills as well as respect for the special effects, man, because it was just so much work went into that, but it was scary. Like seeing the thing just strangle the dogs and suck the life out of them. And Oh my God, that was nuts. I would say the dog was pretty crazy. Um, and then when the dudes, uh, face turned into like the monster thing and it like infected the other guy and then probably seeing the guy's head be pulled off and turn into a spider kind of grossed me out those three how about you you know i mean there's several and i think you hit the nail on the head when talking about the dog thing scene and um the sound design in that scene and just it's one of those classic horror scenes that just lives on forever and Mm. but i think the more unsettling scene for me and really the one that provides the tone for the rest of the film is when mccready and copper go to the norwegian camp and they find it just completely destroyed Mm -hmm. they find that radio operator who's slit his wrist and cut his neck they find the um the split face thing that was burned out in the snow and and then you see the gigantic ice capsule that was holding the thing just empty. And I think that to me just sets the tone for the entire film and gets us going on this mystery as to what actually happened. 
and the music in it is great. I mean, it's a shame that Carpenter didn't use more of Ennio Morricone's score in this, Mm -hmm. but I think the music is spot on, the cinematography is spot on, and just this whole atmosphere and mystery that that camp scene creates is just... It's like it's a it's a chef's kiss of a of a horror movie scene. I agree. And it was great because there was no jump scares either. He like would focus on these grotesque scenes and you he would focus in and you just it you would have to take in the sound, the design and the reactions of the characters and to me that's when you know it's good horror because it doesn't require cheap thrills, cheap scares to make you react. It's you're emotionally reacting based on what you see and feel, because of the scene is just so powerful. That was that's what this film. That's why I think it's fantastic. And there's so many other scenes. I mean, that we could have picked. There was um, Benning's death, and how the tentacle like wraps around his throat, oh. and how he's just looks to be in so much pain while he's in that chair, just being assimilated. There was the Palmer thing that opens up its head and, you know, kills windows, throws them all around the room. And then, (laughs) and then I think the, the death scene in particular that gives me pause is at the very end when the Blair, when Blair, when he has become the thing attacks Gary Mm -hmm. and sticks his fingers in his face and just like suffocates him. And it also this, the part that freaks me out the most is when his Blair's whole hand just covers Gary's face and then he just we see him drag away his bot his lifeless body that's just blah, blah, that gives me the creeps <laughs> I know oh this they just did a great job with this movie and speaking, and I, I yeah go for it <laughs> and I briefly mentioned this too I mean I mean does a lack of a film score I mean, throw off the film at all for you? I mean, because we do get synth, some synth tones and some notes of a traditional film score, but they're really... I mean, Ennio Morricone recorded an hour's worth of music, and really, Carpenter only used about 20 minutes for it. So does that bother you at all? Uh, with this film, no. I felt because it was such a film rooted in isolation and nihilism, the lack of film score work to its benefit it was kind of like with jaws when the when jaws eats the uh captain guy and there's no music it's just straight up emotion i think that's what helped propel the thing in my taste because you're just seeing people react their screams and pain and that's it you didn't you we didn't need anything else to it you know we didn't need the score to make us to remind us what we should feel or to heighten different emotions it was I to me it was just enough. I didn't miss it too much. And it didn't seem like it was that type of film, you know? Like a Star Wars Lord of the Rings ask where you need that score to like set the pace. I mean, to me though, if you're gonna get somebody on uh, you know, the the level that is Ennio Morricone, I would use as much music as he is going to give you because it's Ennio freaking Morricone. <laughs> All right, touche. Have you listened to the score I mean, on Spotify or what? No, I haven't, but I, I, I listen. One of my favorite film scores is actually the score from The Hateful Eight, the Quentin Tarantino film that Ennio Morricone also did. He actually won an Oscar for that as well. Okay. And I feel like he was able to exercise some of his demons that this film kind of gave him because <laughs> The Hateful Eight retains a lot of DNA from the thing. It's almost like... The, the Hateful Eight, the best way I can describe it, is the thing uh, meets the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's the best way I can describe it. Yeah, I would say that's a good uh, yeah, that's a good assessment of it. Although, speaking of people who died, though, yes. did you have a red shirt, Sean? I do. So I have uh, two that could potentially be red shirts. Um, so first and foremost, the first red shirt guy, I believe, was... Uh, Clark, I think was his name. The guy that... Oh, the dog keeper who got shot in the head? Yeah, the guy... So, why he's a red shirt? 
I mean, the whole film is playing him up to be like a dude that was infected because he's like, like he's looking after the dogs and the thing touched him first. And so it's this huge thing. He's tied up. Everyone thinks he's the thing. And when they test his blood, nothing. And he ends up getting shot by uh, Kurt Russell's character because he like has a knife and he thinks Kurt Russell is the thing. And they end up finding out that, no. He's just a murderer. <laughs> Kurt Russell killed him in cold blood. So I felt bad for him dying. I did think it was a nice one over uh, on the director over the audience. But yeah, I felt bad for his death. And then uh, I think not Blair, but Gary, I think, right? He was the one that got suffocated and because his character just got, he just kicked rocks the whole film. Like no one liked him. He murders the Norwegian they think he had the he emptied the blood and he's garbage at his job. He had to give up his gun. I mean, oh, I felt bad I for mean, him. Gary does have that great line. I'd rather not spend the rest of the winter tied to this freaking couch. Dude, dude, that line was so great. There were two great lines in this film. That one and then when Kurt Russell uh, throws the stick of dynamite at the thing. That was another fantastic line. Yeah, so many f bombs in this movie, and they're used to such great effect. Because when the um, Norris's the head falls off the table and the spider legs come out, you see Palmer looking at it go, "You got to be effing kidding!" <laughs> My dad still cracks up when he hears that line, and it's it's a great line. So many great lines in this film. So good. Oh yes, those are my two guys. Though, how about you? You know, I think. <laughs> There are so many to choose from, given the fact that everybody in this film dies. <laughs> and I think the easy ones to choose here are the off-screen deaths that occur. I mean, there's the first one is Fuchs, because he burns himself to death when he's outside. And then there's also <laughs> Nalls, the cook, who he dies off-screen when... McCready and Gary and him are like setting dynamite in Blair's shack and trying to blow up the flying saucer, but... For me, my Richard is going to have to go to Windows. And 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 the reason why is in what could have been his heroic moment of the film when Palmer transforms and becomes a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, he freezes and doesn't light him on fire. Palmer's head opens up and, you know, gets Windows by the throat and bites him in his head and starts throwing him all around the game room (laughs) which and eventually just tosses him into a bookshelf and he's just bleeding profusely from the head and McCready just sees him like in pain and he doesn't have anything else to do other than to just set him on fire and kill him and it's the only way to make sure he doesn't transform and it's it's a very it's it's almost a sad scene, but it's there's no music to it, so we're not really kind of given any sort of emotional weight to it. But it's just almost like, you know, another another person that the thing has claimed, mm-hmm. and there's nothing I can do here but to but to kill him. I know that that one sucked. I felt the same as you. I'm like, do it, just burn him, no, and then he couldn't react fast enough. So, yeah, but I do like your choice of Clark. And then the line that Keith David has looking at McCree is like, so Clark was human, huh? So that makes you a murderer. <laughs> Keith David was so friggin' good in this movie, too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Did you have any lens flares in this? You know, I've got one. And this is actually something that my buddy Phil pointed out to me when we were watching this movie. And... And given how everyone else at Outpost 31 seems to have appropriate cold weather gear, it's amazing to me that McCready can get away with wearing that sombrero hat that he's wearing and not get absolutely ridiculed for it. Mm-hmm. And that's how I know that this is just a, a an invention of pure fantasy. Because you mean to tell me that in a group of 12 guys, you mean to tell me that not a single one of those guys is making fun of McCready for his ridiculous hat. <laughs> yes, I I would say <laughs> yes. That was one of mine as well. I'm like, why is he wearing this hat at this most inappropriate time? Uh, the other one I picked out was McCready dumping scotch in his chess computer after he <laughs> thinks it cheated on him. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> Dude, the bottle of scotch was mine. I was like, why is it never empty? How many bottles of scotch does he have? I mean, assuming he's there for like eight or nine months, he must have had like eight or nine cases of scotch he brought with him. And he even remarks like five minutes later, oh, it's the first week of winter. It's like, you just destroyed the possibly the only entertaining thing that you have for the next eight or nine months. And it's the first week of winter. Douchebag. And then he <laughs> and then he retorts later. He's like, because I'm the coolest head person here, I should be in charge with the pistol. It's like, wait, wasn't this the guy that dumped the scotch into the computer because he thought it was cheating on him? We're going to give him the gun? No, he strong arms his way into becoming the de facto leader because right. he breaks back in and he's holding a stick. He's holding a pack of dynamite in front of a flare. It's like, nobody touch me or I'm going to blow you all up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a great character. Kudos to you, Kurt Russell. Uh, toxic. Oh, man. Do you have any toxic fandom? Oh, do I? And the internet was full of people who had a problem with this movie most of it had to do with continuity errors or boom mics that were visible in the frame but the one i found that kind of bugged me the most was it was around 45 minutes in when mccready says it's 40 below outside and this pedan on imdb said that would be a freakishly warm winter day in inland antarctica where winter temperatures are close to minus 80 fahrenheit and in parentheses it says minus 62 celsius as if people actually do that sort of math that's wow i just i don't know what to say maybe it was someone in antarctica <laughs> in antarctica man that's it's weird man like <laughs> <laughs> it's Every film we watch, somebody has to nitpick and take it to the internet. Like, like the internet cares about your opinions. Yeah. That's it's just so stupid. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, so, with all that in mind, how about we discuss the legacy of John Carpenter's The Thing? All right, let's do it. All right, so, there's a lot of interesting things to note about this movie, particularly the release date. And it came out on June 25th, 1982 and do you want to take a guess what else came out on that day in 1982 uh et <laughs> close that came out a few weeks before the thing blade runner also released on june 25th 1982 oh my god <laughs> no way yeah <laughs> in 1982 was a huge year for science fiction films uh mad max 2 came out in this year tron was released also star trek 2 the wrath of khan was released in 1982 so there was just a huge bevy of sci-fi and fantasy films that people had to choose from oh so god yeah that was incredible so, so however against a budget of 15 million dollars which in 1982 gets you a lot of movie it made 19 just over 19 and a half million at the box office and while it made money it was considered a disappointment because Universal had invested quite a bit of money in promoting the film. Most of it was in this like 20 minute like sizzle reel of the film special effects and critics just absolutely savaged this film. Like some of the harshest like critiques I've ever seen for any movie. Like some of the words used to describe it were the quintessential moron movie, instant junk, people even called it boring. Um, it was it primarily what people kind of focused in on was the lack of characterization, which, again, there's 12 people in this film. You're not going to get full characterization for each of them, mm -hmm. but they praise all of the technical aspects like the the creature designs, uh, the cinematography, sound editing, production design. So a lot of people had high marks for those things. And do you want to guess who? also got in on this criticism let me guess roger ebert he also called the film boring <laughs> but the director of the thing from another world christian neby also wanted to get in on the dog pile of criticism going the way of this film <laughs> what he called this too gory i think his exact quote was if you want blood go to a slaughterhouse oh so the gore really bothered him 
Wow. And he called the film, and I'm paraphrasing, he called it no better than a commercial for J&B Scotch. So he hated this film. Damn. To say the least. That's just that's just cold, man. Considering that he said a vegetable from outer space that needed to be boiled alive. <laughs> what? <laughs> what the heck, man? I don't know. I don't know what he had against John Carpenter, but apparently he took it out on on the thing. And I read this. I had never known this until I was researching for this episode. But there was actually a re-edit of this film that was completed for television viewing. And that was actually supervised by Universal Executive Sin Scheinberg, who we briefly mentioned in when we were discussing Back to the Future and all like the, the weird things that he wanted to to change with that film. And the version that he put out for television added narration, which all already does not does not work for this film. And also threw in a different ending where a dog thing actually escaped Outpost 31 after McCready and Childs froze to death. Great. Just great. <laughs> That's all you've got for that. <laughs> okay. To be fair, though, John Carpenter has completely disowned this version of the film and has even gone as far to call Scheinberg jealous and upset when he <laughs> totally ignored his suggestions for this film. Oh, of course. Douchebag. You know, speaking of... <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> I'll go for it. I'll say this later. <laughs> Speaking of Carpenter, though, I mean, the 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 disappoint the disappointing box office numbers actually cost Carpenter several directing jobs and Universal even terminated his contract after this film was released. So really kind of really kind of derailed Carpenter's career in the mid 80s there. That sucks. But it's funny, like how in now hindsight people look at the film and they really praise it because they think it's like a masterpiece. But it is just one of those things that at the time people hated and were like, oh, they just didn't get it for some freaking reason. But, you know, Chris, I did find something out about this film. That in the wee years of 2002, they made a video game called The Thing. Did you ever play it? You know, I did when I was a much younger man and, <laughs> and you know, it was like, ooh, look. John Carpenter, the thing. I like the movie. Let's let's rent this and try it out. And this was also back in the day of video stores, so I didn't have the game for very long, but I enjoyed playing it immensely. And to this day, you can still find people who do like speed runs of it on uh, on YouTube, or they're just doing playthroughs on YouTube. And it is actually a it's a great game. And Carpenter even considers the game to be canon so it's it's sort of like the unofficial sequel that was never made for the big screen that's awesome yeah i heard the game got i read i read the game that got really favorable reviews so that's good (laughs) (laughs) well and like you were saying i mean um the contemporary reviews have been a lot more positive for the thing i mean on the internet it holds an 85 percent on rotten tomatoes uh, slightly lower on the Metacritic side with 57, but again, their internet ratings take them for what you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the big thing that helped kind of turn around people's perspective on this is the home media releases. And I mean, all from VHS, DVD, HD DVD, Blu-ray, and now 4K, it's found a release on every single one of those formats. And the most recent being it was uh, back in 2017, there was a 4K restoration done of the film, and that's really kind of helped bring it to new rev- uh, relevance. And, I mean, and it's been considered a cult classic for the last 20 years, and you can see its influence pretty much in, I mean, for, in all forms of entertainment, television, video games, uh, other films. It's It's amazing to see how far that this film has influenced different media it did it's influenced it so much they influenced the media so much chris that they decided to make a prequel in 2011 (laughs) (laughs) they did and it was it was also titled the thing yeah but that was centered around what happened at the norwegian camp but I think it's appropriate to save our full critique of that for a later episode. Yes, yes, <laughs> we will. 
we'll watch. But I don't, I don't know if you saw this too, but there was actually plans for a sequel to the film, like on miniseries format, that would center on a Russian team that would find the bodies of McCready and Childs and would take them back to a research facility in New Mexico. <laughs> and but these plans were scrapped, and then Universal pursued the the prequel in 2011. Yeah, I mean, I guess the prequel would be better than that. That just sounds horrible. Because <laughs> the thing pops out of the bodies and then does the whole thing all over. At least the prequel adds some continuity to it. But we'll talk about that later. I did hear, though, that Blumhouse but... Productions, is uh, they announced in 2020 they're going to develop a remake of The Thing, which upon seeing this... I'm not excited to hear that at all. Well, I mean, I think I I don't think you should be like 100 percent excited, but I think there is reason to be at least anticipating this film because Blumhouse also um, did the remake or reboot of um, Halloween back in 2018. And that was with the involvement of John Carpenter. And from what I understand, John Carpenter is also involved with this this uh, planned remake that Blumhouse is going to do. And okay. honestly, I, I can't think of a better studio than Blumhouse to helm like a, this, this type of project because they have just totally revitalized horror films in the last 10 years or so. And I th- I think this remake is in good hands. Okay. I mean, we'll, we'll see, we'll see what happens with it, but I, I would, I would be cautiously optimistic for this. One. Cautiously optimistic. I like that. Ah, so with our cautious optimism, Chris, I think it's time to rate the thing. Yes, absolutely. And on our unique scale for the force-fed sci-fi podcast of wouldn't watch, would watch, would own, and would host a viewing party, what do you give to John Carpenter's The Thing, Sean? Uh, The Thing, what do I give The Thing? I would say, to me, it would be in the realm of hosting a viewing party. Um, and that's pretty crazy because it is a horror film and I'm not a fan of horror, but I think the acting was fantastic. There were no performances that hogged the screen. I think everybody did a great job. The character was great. Like the thing itself was just a fantastically confusing, like questioning where it was so shrouded with ambiguity. It was just fantastic. Like we've talked about, it's just one of those films that you got to keep going back to it. And I don't think it ever gets old uh, the more you view it. So to me, that's great. I thought every element that we've talked about so far was just fantastic. I love the callbacks to the first film from the 50s, like with the ice block and everything. Um, It just was great. Like the film to me was everything. And I would even say, if you're going to watch the thing, maybe try and see the 1950s version first and then this one just to check it all out because then you can compare. But I think it was just great. The film was great, and I'm ve- I am was very pleasantly surprised with what I saw, and I will be telling everyone to go see this. So that's my rating. How about you? Um, I will I will start off my review by saying this. I will say... John Carpenter has long been one of my favorite filmmakers. I think his style is uncompromising and an argument can be made that he is easily one of the most influential filmmakers of his generation. And to me, I believe that the thing is his magnum opus and this is easily the best film that he's ever made. And to this day, like you said, it's managed to stay relevant I love that there is always something new to find every every time I watch it. It's a it's a it's a fun well to return to every so often. There are some plot holes because every film has plot holes, but the pacing is incredible. It doesn't get bogged down in dialogue. It focuses on the creature effects, the production design and the tension like the tension is so thick in this film. You could eat it like a block of cheese. It is. (laughs) so great and it makes the film 10 times better and i don't think this would be the same film if it were made by somebody else and you have the the perfect alchemy of the actors that were cast and all these great elements that came together to make this film and like i said i'm gonna i'm interested to see what that remake is gonna be like but until that comes out i'm gonna continue watching john carpenter's a thing 
and I would call his film. I would host a viewing party anytime for this film. <laughs> Rock on. Sweet. Well, folks, that's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> High marks from us for John Carpenter's a thing. And and once it's safe, I think we should absolutely host a viewing party for this, Sean. Definitely. Absolutely. <laughs> us, us and our... Us and our respective significant others get together and we'll scare the pants off of them. I am down. I think Alexis would love this. Yes, let's do it. Uh, <laughs> but before we do so that. That's, that's going to take care of John Carpenter's a thing. So what do you say we pick our next film, Sean? I'm down. All right. So from our list of 118 films, we're going to enlist the help of our friendly random number generator, Major Samantha to help us pick our next film. And from that list, she has selected number 14. <laughs> There's a film from 2015 directed by Joss Whedon and starring a whole bevy of superstars. It is Avengers Age of Ultron. No way. Wow. That's like out of left field. Not even expecting that one. Sweet. <laughs> all right i'm i'm excited to watch that one man it, i gotta tell you yeah, i haven't seen that in forever and i'm kind of you know i'm kind of in a uh, james spader mood all of a sudden all right we'll rock on <laughs> that's gonna be our movie for next time please watch and enjoy with us and if you enjoyed today's episode please 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 head on over to apple podcasts and leave us a five-star review that is the best place to do it it really helps to drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show we are across the spectrum of social media with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Forcefed Sci-Fi. You can check out and download episodes at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you find podcasts. And go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Finally, you can check out our website, forcefedsci-fi.com, for show notes and links to all of our social media. So for all of us at the Force Fed Sci-Fi team, we will see you next time. 